0: We used to like to say that storage is really the holy grail of energy, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think there's a lot of different elements that combine basis to create the holy grail, but storage is a critical component of our energy future, and as it's gotten more publicity and more people are talking about it, consumers are getting more interested in learning about storage.
1: Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar developer and consulting firm. Our website's reneuenergy.com. I'm excited to interview Eric White. He's a CEO and founder of Dividend Finance. Dividend is a leading provider of renewable energy and energy efficient financing solutions to property owners. They give their customers the opportunity to obtain clean energy financing through a comprehensive suite of financing options. He's a seasoned energy transition, renewables, and fintech entrepreneur with a passion for conceptualizing and designing innovative financial structures, products, and business strategies that break down capital barriers and power underserved markets. There are a lot of interesting things that Eric talks about and insights that he provides during the interview. Some of them is about how the electrification of the car fleet is impacting the home. He also talks about the home as a virtual power plant, which will create new revenue streams. And then he also speaks to about expanding access to solar and how distributed energy creates resiliency. I nope. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. And thank you for listening. And let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have Eric White. He's the CEO of Dividend Finance. And Eric, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you being on today.
0: Thanks for hosting me.
1: Anytime. I think your perspective is really interesting. We haven't actually had someone from your background come on to the podcast, and it's really interesting what Dividend Finance is doing. It would be great, like in the pre-intro, we talk about Dividend Finance, but it'd be great to get it from your perspective. Can you talk about Dividend Finance and what you do?
0: Yeah, sure. So Dividend Finance has been around since 2013. Originally, we were called Dividend Solar and really entered the market as the first residential solar lending platform. But the way to think of us is really sitting at the nexus of -of point-of-sale finance and residential energy transition. So that means financing anything from solar to batteries to other types of efficiency and home performance measures that really focus on this concept of distributive systems as well as the transition from the extraction-based economy of our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation to a creation-based economy of our generation.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to simplify what you do because you're involved in so many different aspects. What made you decide to transition from dividend solar to finance? It sounds like you're basically offering all the lending for any sort of home improvements in the home. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Almost all of which have some sort of sustainability element as well.
1: That is pretty interesting. Can you go into more detail about, obviously, we mentioned about solar, but all the different sort of lines and more detail of home improvements related to sustainability, I think that would be really helpful.
0: Absolutely. So we'll finance anything from solar to storage to electric heat pumps. So really anything in the HVAC part of the home, roofing, energy efficient windows, siding, insulation, geothermal, sustainable landscaping, and the list goes on and on. I think the reality is that virtually every type of project on the home today has a impact on its resource use and, and generation for that matter. In that regard, pretty much every type of home improvement project you conceive see above has some element of efficiency or performance attached to it.
1: How do you get like your lenders or investors comfortable with the different technologies? They might not be as familiar with some to the other. Like how has that process been? I'm sure it's been challenging and it's taken a lot of time as well.
0: The answer to that question depends on the particular type of technology and particular type of project. But just giving some anecdotes on the solar loan, when we first created that product back in 2013, 2014 timeframe. I was spending a lot of my time in New York meeting with institutional asset investors, really trying to explain the credit thesis and credit case for why residential solar loans made sense. And really for the first 18 months of taking these meetings, we would have these great meetings. And at the end, investor that I was talking to on the other side would have some sort of response along the lines of, this is really interesting, but solar is a risky asset class and we don't participate in risky asset classes. And lo and behold, eight years later, the performance history of residential solar loans as an asset class have really stood out as being one of the best consumer credit assets in the market today.
1: That is interesting, and that's a great perspective. And I think about it as well because a little before I was working at Tesla Solar City around 2012, 2011, and telling it banks or investors about solar, it was this newfangled thing. And it's just amazing if you think about it, like how comfortable they've gotten in a very short period of time. And it's been amazing to see, you know, how dividend finance has been able to scale because of it being this sort of growing technology that now investors are comfortable and consumers, obviously, and. You're contractors that you're partnering with.
0: Yeah, and it's been a fun and exciting ride, not without its bumps along the way as every entrepreneur experiences inevitably, but it's been really rewarding to see the results of everything we've done.
1: And obviously like everyone's talking about storage and combining solar plus storage. Can you talk about, you know, maybe your loan products related to that specifically for residential?
0: Absolutely. I mean, storage is certainly one of the topics de jour as of late. And you know I think it's for very good reason. We used to like to say that storage is really the holy grail of energy. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I think there's a lot of different elements that combined basis create the holy grail. But storage is a critical component of our energy future. And as it's gotten more publicity and more people are talking about it, consumers are getting more interested in learning about storage, especially in markets west of the Mississippi, where we're prone to wildfires and in California, rolling black. Outs due to many decades of underinvestment and mismanagement of critical grid infrastructure. You know, the consumers that are looking to go storage are doing it for a whole host of reasons. In some cases, they don't even know why they're looking for storage. They're intrigued and really trying to educate themselves. But the reasons range from resilience, whether it relates to weather-driven power outage, blackout due to grid imbalance you know, during peak summer hours when everyone's running their air condition, to time of use rate arbitrage in markets that have utility rate structures that really allow for that. So there's a lot of different reasons people are considering storage. And I think going forward, there's going to be a lot more value creation opportunities that are unlocked with storage as we start to transition into much more substantial DER, distributed energy resource market.
1: Those are really great points. And as you said, I think with time of use and arbitrage, you know, people taking advantage of that primarily as well, you know, battery backup is probably the primary reason, as you mentioned. Can you talk about too as well how like electrification of transportation is also impacting trends related to like home investment and improvements?
0: Absolutely. So I think it's really impacting the home itself in two ways. One, a lot of people are now purchasing electric vehicles, thereby need EV charging capabilities at their house. I personally don't have any sort of EV charger at my house. So I'm stuck waiting 13 hours to charge my hybrid and get 30 miles of usage on it. And as people are moving away from gas-powered cars and adopting an EV vehicles, it makes all the sense in the world to be able to charge your car in a shorter amount of time in hours that provide you with the most favorable cost of that energy.
1: Yeah, that's a great point because obviously people are usually working during the day then putting in their charging station at night where electricity is the lowest to take advantage of time of use.
0: Yep, absolutely. And then really the second way that's starting to impact the home is bi-directional capabilities where you can actually use the charger or the battery in your EV to provide power for your home in the same way that you can charge your EV from electricity coming off the grid or created by the solar system on your home.
1: That's another great point. Obviously, like, you know, the Ford F-150, everyone's been talking about the battery that you could then use it as battery backup for your home. Do you guys finance EV charging as part of like the homes?
0: Certainly EV charging, not... EVs today. And as it relates to the second topic along the lines of what Ford's doing with their new F-150, you know, I think there's still a lot of open questions as to electrical code and the actual real implications of being able to theoretically transmit electricity from your EV to the home. It's a really exciting area of innovation in the overall market.
1: I was wondering, like, do you get comfortable, like, with the different technologies, you know, the manufacturers of these different technologies? Since there's so many different companies out there, obviously, people talk about like what the panels, Bloomberg Tier One, but that's more of like financial stability of the company than the yeah. actual quality of the panel. It'd be interesting to get. How do you get your credit committee or your investors comfortable with these different products?
0: Yep, absolutely. So we have a team dedicated to fleet management, equipment diligence, and contractor diligence and management that really specializes in the more technical aspects of solar. You know, they're responsible for maintaining our approved vendor list, which is, you know, the types of equipment and manufacturers that we're willing to finance for actually diligencing new technologies that are coming to the market, interacting with various third party organizations that focus specifically on technical assessment and review of various types of equipment, which could mean they literally have someone in a specific factory in China doing quality assurance, quality control, testing, and reporting on the output from that particular factory. It's as much of an art as a science, just given the rate of innovation in this broader energy transition sector. I think the good news is, at least on the module and inverter side, the technology has become more or less ubiquitous. And we have quite a bit of performance history at this point to really support some of the technical concerns that may have come up 10, 15 years ago as investors first started looking at this Yes.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's a great answer. That's really helpful to understand, Eric. And I appreciate you explaining. It's interesting that you guys are doing like quality assurance in in these manufacturing facilities.
0: And we also actively monitor production from all the solar systems that we finance, or at least the vast majority. So you know, we can see real-time or close to real-time production from that system and identify anomalies at a particular meter relative to other meters in that area where we have projects and identify some sort of performance issue that may be driven by workmanship, manufacturing deficiency, or the homeowner putting a tarp over the roof, or little Billy accidentally unplugging the modem when he's trying to reset his Xbox Live.
1: That is really interesting because like that data to perform analytics is huge especially to analyze you know the different loans in your portfolio and to give comfort to your investors. I know I've been reading a lot that systems tend to be underperforming based on many different reasons. Is that like something that you're seeing or how do you like mitigate that risk? It certainly has been a hot
0: topic in the utility scale and really in the C&I market in particular. On the residential side, it hasn't been as big of an issue. The reality is global weather patterns don't happen in days. They don't happen in months. They don't even necessarily happen in years. They happen over decades. So just because a system appears to be underperforming relative to the initial projections, you really have to account for weather trends as well in evaluating whether it's a specific system issue or whether it's a function of the environment around it.
1: That's another great point about the weather trends and that impacting.
0: You know, one of the relevant topics in California as of late, or even really much of the West has been wildfire impact on module production. And it's a real issue. When you have smoke in the air that's impairing the UV penetration and access to the base of that module, it creates performance issues. And it's become a trend in California where two months out of the summer, you're living in a smoky environment where your systems are underperforming.
1: I never even knew that impacted the production of panels. And that's obviously in California, that's been a big issue. So I appreciate you explaining that. Absolutely. And personally, I had solar installed last August,
0: right in the middle of smoky season and saw very limited production and for the first couple of months I had the system as a result. So I'm a uh, victim, if you will, firsthand.
1: Yeah, definitely. I would never have known that there could be that big of an impact on production based on that. So and I don't think many people are talking about that, so that's really you know great information to provide that you're experiencing directly from your own system. And you talked about earlier your installer partner network. Can you talk about how you vet them to get high quality systems and maybe it was interesting to hear too like how you're helping them like in the sales process and in other ways to help their business. So it'd be great to understand like how you're partnering with them.
0: The solar industry is relatively small compared to broader home contracting or general contracting industry. There's less than 10,000 solar installers, at least in the residential space out there. Some would say, you know, between five and 6,000, but let's just say between five and 10,000. So that's a fairly small universe. Bad actors are quickly known to everyone in the space. That's a huge benefit when you're underwriting a contractor. Very seldomly do you come across a name that you either haven't heard of directly or your one or two iterations of Kevin and bacon removed from that contractor. So I think that's just a benefit to everyone in the industry, but we go through a comprehensive onboarding and diligence process with every contractor that we work with, which includes things from financial statement reporting to reference checks to background checks on the principles of those organizations to random third-party site inspections to project packets for historical work that they've done. So it's a very comprehensive process. So we do a lot of work on the front end. And then we have also a comprehensive vendor or third third-party contractor management platform that we use to really track and manage and monitor those contractors over time.
1: That's great to hear. I mean, it sounds like a very due diligence type of process. I was laughing about your Kevin Bacon joke because in solar, as you were saying, one to two degrees.
0: <laughs> it's only one to two in the solar industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, that's really helpful to know. And then obviously your residential customers, like what is the process for them to apply for the loan? What are some of the things that you're looking for, you know, for someone that you're going to lend to? Because obviously, everyone listening is also potentially a residential customer.
0: Absolutely. So I think the answer to that question has changed significantly over time. So when we started the company, I personally didn't have any consumer credit experience. The way that I was thinking about residential solar financing was really with a project finance mindset, albeit at a micro level. So for the first several years that we were in business, we would underwrite every single residential project based on the expected cash flows and savings generated to that project in the same way you know a commercial lender would underwrite to a debt service coverage ratio. Rationale there was if the consumer is saving money by virtue of having that solar system on their roof, even after their principal and interest payments, relative to what they otherwise would have had to pay for electricity that they're buying at retail rates, conceivably, they should make that loan payment in order to continue to get the benefits of the solar production. That was a very time-consuming and intensive process doing project by project underwriting. We also were requiring proof of income for every single customer, whether that meant getting pay stubs, W-2s, or actually getting the consumer's consent to access their tax files with the IRS. So it was not as intense as underwriting for a mortgage, but we asked for a lot. And very early on, we were really the only player in town. So I would say the consumers and the contractors were more or less fine with providing that level of detail in the absence of alternatives. I think as the space has evolved and as all of us have gotten smarter on the key credit considerations for residential solar projects, we've been able to intelligently reduce the number of upfront requirements that we require from the consumer and probably shorten the approval time by 30 minutes at least and effectively make everything automated today.
1: That's amazing to hear. Within seven to eight years, how you're able to just right. have an online application. I'm sure there's like a credit check.
0: Absolutely, and actually, really within 12 months of launching our origination product, we had moved to instantaneous, real-time approvals.
1: Any way to like shorten the sales cycle, and that really yep. makes a huge difference. Can you talk about like how you differentiate from other loan providers in the industry? Obviously, we talked about that, but it'd be great if you could get yeah. just- this. I think what
0: we're really good at is listening to our customers. When I say customers in this context, I'm referring to installers and understanding their pain points and then working on creative solutions, or in some cases, maybe not creative solutions that address those problems. And I think that's meant a lot of different things over time. One of the first things we did when we started the company was actually to build an online sales proposal tool for contractors because there really wasn't anything when it came to third-party proposal creation tools in the market. That's changed dramatically today. There's probably over a dozen different third-party software tools for proposal generation, but there really wasn't anything back when we started the company. So we built that tool. And for the first couple of years, we were as much of a CRM software company as we were a finance company, given the amount of functionality and tools that we had configured for the benefit of contractors.
1: That's really interesting because that's a huge benefit to the contractor for you to have that and that included with the product and that creates like loyalty and partnership to have that CRM and then like provide the output to give to customers. Because a lot of these contractors are relatively new, at least in the solar space and not thinking about presentation and keeping track of the different leads. So that's really interesting.
0: Absolutely. And you know, given the extensive amount of, oversight that we have and data and reporting and tracking on every project and every customer that we interact with, we're able to very quickly identify problematic situations and really use those as learning opportunities with the contractor and the principles of that contracting business to make themselves better and to make all of us better in the process.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because obviously your contractors play a huge role, right? Because they're bringing the residential customers to you, right? And it's a partnership between the contractor and basically dividend finance, right?
0: Absolutely. Look, I think there's bad projects out there and there's bad contractors out there, but bad can mean a lot of different things. Bad could mean incompetent or just inexperienced, or it could mean having malicious or nefarious intent in how a contractor or its employees operate. And really being able to separate those two different types of bad, I think is important. For the vast majority of participants in the market, they have very good intentions. That doesn't necessarily mean that all the outcomes of what they're doing are good, but I think for the most part, there's genuinely good intentions. And when there's not, we can quickly flag those situations and take action to ensure that one consumer existing customers of that particular situation are treated properly and also to prevent bad actors from really tarnishing the reputation and name of the broader industry.
1: It would be great, too, to get your perspective. Like, Obviously, the primary form of financing for residential, at least for solar, has been the loan product that Dividend Finance offers and then third-party ownership or a power purchase agreement. Can you talk about why loan might be a better option than a PPA?
0: Absolutely. And that question is really why dividend was started in the first place. After spending some time really understanding the financing landscape in the residential solar sector back in 2012-2013, became clear that there was a massive need for an alternative to lease and PPA financing. Like leases and PPAs were incredibly important in helping really catalyze initial penetration of resi-solar across the US. That didn't necessarily mean that it was the end-all, be-all solution for decades and decades to come. And the way that leases and PPAs were and still are marketed and sold to the consumer is based on a pitch of savings to the consumer on a monthly basis, where it's more or less set it and forget it, someone else maintains it. What I mean by that is the contractor that's offering a lease or PPA product will go to the consumer and say, hey, we can save you 15% a month over your current utility bill. If You allow us to install solar in your house and make these monthly payments. We'll maintain and own that system. We'll be the beneficiary of the tax credits. And all you have to worry about is how much you save. Very simple and compelling pitch. It reduces any sort of concern by the consumer that have to have knowledge of solar and we'll have to maintain that system over time and do a bunch of work. And as a result, it was very effective in the early years. But what often was not understood by the consumer that were entering into these lease and PPA agreements was, one, if they actually had tax appetite and the ability to take the benefits of the investment tax credit for solar, they were basically releasing that to a third party. But probably even more importantly, most leasing PPA agreements have annual contractual escalators, meaning just because your monthly payment was at one level in one year doesn't mean that that's the same amount you'll pay for the entire life of the lease. And in fact, you know, on average, those escalators can be three to 5% per annum. And retail electricity prices overwhelmingly have gone up over time. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a perfectly linear uptick. There could be years when retail electricity prices are flat, or maybe they only go up by 1%. You still have a 5% escalator in your lease or PPA contract. And over time, that could mean that you have a situation where you're actually not saving money as that lease or PPA consumer as a result of that escalator. The third point I would make is lease and PPA. PPAs historically have had lots of challenges with respect to transferability at the time of a home sale. I think a lot of those challenges have been addressed in the last few years. But when we started dividend, there was not a great way to get out of a lease or PPA if you're selling your home. And with a loan, it's very, very easy to either transfer that loan to the buyer of that home, assuming that they are creditworthy, or to pay off that loan with the proceeds from your home sale based on an assumption that the purchase price should include the value associated with a solar, both in the appraisal that's used for the mortgage as well as just the market-based price.
1: This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you'd love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation. Or call 347 878 Seven one eight two seven three. 871 8273 That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Those two points are so interesting that the lease and PPA potentially could be more costly than their energy bill, which is kind of the premise of why they're selling it based on you know the inflation rates and what the right. energy yep.
0: is. And especially in the earlier years of more widespread lease and PPA adoption, so 2010 to 2014, 2015, there was also just a lot of misalignment of incentives between investors, homeowners, and between installers, especially with PPAs where in some ways the investors and installers were motivated to install as large of a project on a consumer's roof as possible in order to, one, maximize the value of the tax credit associated with that project, but also to generate more revenue based on the production
1: of that system. So inherently, it wasn't based on the customer's best interest, but what was best for the two parties, the investor and the channel partner and the installer. Correct. What we've
0: really designed with the loan program we've set up is a program that really aligns interest amongst all those stakeholders.
1: The other thing that I think too, when you do the loan product is it's a home improvement. So it technically appreciates the value of the home at the time of sale, right? And there's not that complexity with the PPA transfer to another party. And then technically the savings would be a lot higher with the loan product compared to doing like a PPA and lease.
0: Especially over time, as the escalators from the lease and PPA really increase that monthly payment, whereas a loan payment it remains flat over the life of the loan.
1: And that's a great point, too, because then it's compounding, right? And usually the lease or PPA is what, like 20 years normally. So that's great insight that you provided on that. Just to go on to another point that you talked about, do you offer like a loan product for commercial customers? We actually do have
0: a presence in the CNI space, and it's not something we talk a lot about, not because we don't like it, it just hasn't been as significant a part of our business historically. We entered the CNI space in 2016 as part of a merger or acquisition of Big Tree Financing, which was one of the original CPACE providers in California. And initially, the rationale for that merger was not really just to get into commercial financing, it was really to build a residential PACE platform, leveraging a lot of the core infrastructure and relationships that have been established on the commercial side. But we we don't need to get into what's happened to the residential case industry over the last five or six years. I think we started to see the writing on the wall very quickly after zinning up a residential case product. So we haven't really done much in the residential case space or anything for that matter in many years. But we've continued to operate our commercial case business and view commercial pace as a massive market opportunity that really until recently has been subscale and not appreciated or really understood by all the different stakeholders in commercial real estate. So we're actively growing our commercial pace business and we've even expanded beyond just commercial pace to be able to offer other types of financing products and structures to commercial and industrial property owners, landlords that really are tailored and specific to their unique needs.
1: That's really helpful to explain. Eric, can you talk about, if our audience is not familiar, like what is PACE or specifically commercial PACE? I think that yeah, would absolutely. be... Absolutely.
0: PACE stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy, which is really a fancy acronym to describe an innovative financial product that was created in the city of Berkeley back in 2009. And the premise, the basis for it is it's a way to use your property tax assessment to fund renewable and other sustainable and energy efficiency projects on properties, whether they be commercial, industrial, or residential. And by virtue of the financing occurring through the property tax roll, those payments are in essence super senior to the payments of the mortgage for that consumer in a liquidation. So there's a tremendous credit benefits in financing that way that dramatically reduce the cost of funding for projects that leverage commercial pace as part of the financing set.
1: I appreciate you explaining it. I don't think a lot of people know about that. And it's a very creative financing that based on property tax. And I think we're going to see pace like eventually, as you talked about, there's been a lot of like hiccups, but I think you're going to see. And, a
0: lot. and commercial in particular, I think is starting to really start to experience substantial growth after many years of being subscale and outside of the view of most of the market.
1: Can you talk about your Empower Plus product that you have
0: Absolutely. So I think one of the trends that we've seen in recent years across the RESI energy transition ecosystem, previously was just called the solar ecosystem, has really been doing more than just solar as part of an installation of solar. So getting storage alongside a solar installation all at the same time, or getting a new roof as part of solar installation. Because the last thing you want to do is install a solar project on a roof that's 20 years old and will need to be replaced in a week. That's really driven need and desire to to offer the ability to fund other projects that are related to solar, but not necessarily solar specifically under a single financing product. So that's when we say solar plus, that really means solar plus other types of energy efficiency and home improvement measures in a single loan.
1: The solar and roof thing is something that residential customers like have a hard time with and to have it in under one project or one loan, it makes everything a lot easier
0: absolutely. And just to expand on that a little bit, I think one thing that's becoming pretty clear to me is that it makes a lot of sense if you're messing with the electrical parts of the house to do multiple things at the same time, because there's a lot of interoperability considerations, whether it means impact to the main panel and having to upgrade the main panel of the house or related type of things that you can't necessarily foresee if you're doing each of these different measures in piecemeal. So there's a strong argument to be made to do multiple measures at the same time. So solar, storage, electric heat pump, EV charging, and just kind of do it all at once. You're already going to have an electrician at the house for each of those projects. You know, why not realize economies of scale so they don't have to come out five different times and additionally having to change and add to your solar projects over time as your electricity demand increases moving from natural gas to electric heating, for example.
1: Yeah, I never even thought about it, not have that person come at one time and do these improvements at the same time instead of separate times. That's interesting. One of the things that I would love to get your perspective of is like, what trends are you seeing in the solar industry? You know, we've talked about some of the trends. It's exciting to see like that you're doing all these different products with the homeowner that is related to sustainability. So I think you have like a unique vantage point as well as you're like communicating with the investor community. You're working with your installer partners and then obviously getting feedback from residential customers. So like puts you in a unique place, Eric, to kind of see a lot of what's going on. And it would be great to get your perspective what trends that you're
0: seeing. And I think we've hit on a couple of the key trends in this call, and I'll just repeat them in a very high levels in case folks missed earlier. But the storage demand and interest, whether it's standalone storage or PV and storage at the same time, the general transition to all electric home. Once again, the city of Berkeley was a leader there after they banned natural gas a couple of years back for all new construction. But a lot of the recent research has made a really compelling case for the benefits of an all electric market. And when you have electric homes at mass scale, it not only benefits the individual homeowners, but is tremendously beneficial to the overall system, meaning the overall power market in terms of just cost reduction over time. I think you'll continue to see a lot more focus on home electrification, both in terms of just consumer interest, but also policy and other types of support from federal government, state government, utilities, and local government as well. That's increasingly becoming front and center of everyone's mind in this space. Some of the other trends I think that we're seeing is a real focus on trying to expand access to solar and other types of energy efficiency measures to not just the affluent super prime homeowner, but really everyone. So often referred to as LMI profile citizens, so low to moderate income that historically have been dramatically underserved in getting access to solar and home improvement, largely due to the fact that their credit history and their income levels have either caused their cost of financing to be exorbitant or because they couldn't get financing at all in And similarly, there's challenges around how do you provide these type of measures to renters? There's a lot of policy focus and a strong desire from participants in the industry and in government to really expand access to the LMI portion of the community who are significantly burdened by their energy costs. And most of their energy is also not coming from clean sources. You know, just makes for a double whammy.
1: Those are great trends, and I appreciate you talking about it. That double whammy is something, and then the electrification of the home.
0: Yeah, and relatedly, I think the other emerging area is DER and virtual power plants. So, solar historically been sold based on saving the consumer money, but what hasn't really happened yet is creating new ways to monetize the behind the meter assets at an individual property. So, when you have a small thermostat as a consumer, you can sign up for what are called demand response programs that will actually pay you for providing remote control access to that smart thermostat to a third party that will then work with the utilities and grid operators who will actually pay that consumer or that aggregator for being able to respond to demand events on the grid. For example, Ohm Connect has been a great leader in the space in California. They have tens of thousands of customers that probably right around this time today, when it's 95 degrees across the state, And the overall grid is on the verge of a blackout to actually adjust the AC in that house via the smart thermostat to ensure that there's not as significant of a grid impact during those peak summer hours.
1: Yeah, that is so interesting that you mentioned that because I was reading yesterday about how in Texas, they're telling people to turn down the air conditioning because it could lead to another blackout. And this is basically a way where the customer or the aggregator could counteract that, as you said, with what Ohm Connect is doing in California. So that's really interesting perspective.
0: In some ways, I feel fortunate not to have the problem at my house, given I don't have HVAC. I don't have air conditioning at least and I'm just sitting sweltering.
1: For sure. and I don't know with your solar, did you end up getting uh, storage or is it just... So I did not get storage and it
0: was something that I really grappled with. I still don't really necessarily have a good reason why I decided not to initially do it. Something I'll certainly do in the future, but just didn't really see the need for it today from a resilience standpoint, You know, given I could spend $600 on a small gas generator that I can take out of my garage when there's some sort of blackout event, whether it's deliberate shutoff to prevent a wildfire for a day or two, or because of a rolling blackout. And I can use that little generator to charge my phone, make sure my modem's still connected to the internet. And that's about the extent of my critical load.
1: And that makes sense too, as like storage costs continue to go down, I think especially in the next two or three years, it will become a lot more affordable and make right. sense for battery backup versus as what you're talking about, a small generator. So yep.
0: Now, I think will be interesting and potential challenge will be compatibility of new batteries with existing solar projects. And that new battery talk to the legacy inverters on an old solar system on the roof.
1: A great point. Compatibility, like I didn't even think about that. That's definitely something that's going to be potentially an issue in the future. One of the other questions that I was going to ask you, you talked about this a little bit. Obviously, you saw a need when you first started the company to have a loan product for solar. But can you go into more detail of what made you start the company?
0: So I had a fundamental belief that in pretty much all the developed world, we had constructed our resource systems fast backwards, as they say. And just to give you an example of what I mean in the context of energy and power markets, in the United States, we historically have relied almost entirely on a centralized power infrastructure configuration where the consumer that's actually the user or the consumer of that electricity may be using electricity that's been generated thousands of miles away, which just doesn't make a lot of sense when it comes to efficiency, especially when there's an alternative that allows that consumer to generate electricity at the same site that it's being consumed. So there's just a lot less loss during the transmission. And further, when you have a centralized system like the grid, it's prone to central or single points of failure. And it's very concerning both from a national security standpoint, as well as just a general economic standpoint and quality of life standpoint when grid is not reliable. You know, if you're on a ventilator and there's a rolling blackout, that's a big problem. So if you can really build a distributed model for power markets that works symbiotically and synergistically with centralized infrastructure, that really creates the ideal outcome from a reliability standpoint, from a resilience standpoint, and from a performance
1: standpoint. It's interesting to me. This Maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. It would be helpful for you to talk about your prior experience and then what gave you the confidence to be an entrepreneur and make you know go based on your thesis to start dividend finance. It would be great to learn more about that.
0: Absolutely. So my background has really two consistent themes. One is energy, the other is finance. Not always the clean type of energy. So I actually started my career as an oil and gas investment banker, focused on primarily natural gas market, which at the time I've. Used as being a grid to a more sustainable future. And that's probably just a function of the incredible PR efforts of the natural gas industry and Aubrey McClendon from Chesapeake in particular. But the reality is at that time, the economics for renewables were not really that compelling with a handful of exceptions, West Texas wind and maybe some hydropower. But solar economics were really not that strong at that time. And my view was that they probably wouldn't be ever in my lifetime. But I was wrong in that sense. And I think over the last 10 years, we've seen dramatic improvements both from a technology standpoint, from a cost reduction standpoint, and from a performance standpoint that have made many types of renewable and other energy efficiency measures not only a progressive West Coast dream, but very much an economic reality that stands on its own merits across all the country.
1: That's amazing to hear. And I'm sure when you first started, you didn't expect the cost declines and technology increases that you talked about. I mean, it's amazing how exponential it's been.
0: You know, certainly my experience in in oil and gas investment banking helped me ultimately get me to the good side of energy, both in terms of raw technical skills, but really just understanding how power and energy markets work at their core. And that coupled with work in private equity as a buy side investor focused on real asset investing. So infrastructure, real property and energy, I think just further enhanced my skill set, enhanced the breadth and scope of my knowledge base and maybe more confident or naive to try to start a company.
1: Sometimes. it's good as an entrepreneur to be naive. You have to be
0: naive. I encourage all entrepreneurs to start their first company when they're young and they don't know any better.
1: You're leading into my next question. What advice do you have for someone who wants to get into entrepreneurship?
0: I think you really just have to trust your gut, trust your
1: instincts, and
0: never let anyone else's feedback discourage you from moving forward with what your vision and dream really is. There's a lot of people out there that will tell you why things won't work or why your idea isn't good or where it can go wrong. And I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to them because I think there's a lot of great feedback that you can get in those conversations, but you shouldn't let them discourage you because there's a reason not everyone's an entrepreneur. Some of it is perhaps naivety, but in many cases, a function of raw willpower that ultimately allows you to move past any sort of detractors and truly innovate.
1: That is great advice. And what do you think are the biggest reasons for dividend finance's growth over this period of time? Willpower. And what's next for dividend? What do you see like the future being? I mean, you definitely have diversified and changed the business model substantially in a very short period of time with the different things that you're doing at the home. Are you at liberty to talk about?
0: What I can say at a high level is we're still very much in the top of the first inning when it comes to the broader energy transition. I mean, just because the residential solar market is more or less well understood at this point doesn't mean that the residential energy transition or the broader energy transition market is well understood. There's all these different measures and new technologies that we've discussed on this call are still in their infancy. And when it comes to things like DER and the ability to actually monetize behind the meter assets, as that market really evolves and takes shape, it's going to dramatically impact how these projects and how these measures are going to be financed. And we want to be at the forefront of all this incredible and exciting change happening across the sector.
1: One of the things I know we talked about it earlier, but at this point, you're not financing EV cars or have you thought about it? Is that some product offering that you might have in the future just because the residential customer is probably buying that with these technology innovations that they're doing at their home to lead towards?
0: We've certainly thought about it and it's something we may consider in the future. But interestingly, back in 2014, we were looking at a partnership with a company that was called AutoWatts at the time, started by Alex Tiller. You know, really fast concept where he was trying to sell residential solar via the F&I person at a car dealership after a consumer just purchased an EV. So for anyone out there that's purchased a car, I'm sure you're familiar with the experience where you sit there with some guy behind the screen clicking a bunch of buttons trying to sell you various types of warranties and service plans. The idea was, if you're already purchasing an EV, why not install solar in your house to power that EV? And it was a really compelling narrative. I think it didn't ultimately pan out for a whole host of reasons, but I think the concept was very intriguing. And I think it's probably a matter of time before you start seeing that type of selling at the dealership through F&I folks.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's interesting to me because now like at every Lowe's and Home Depot, someone's trying to sell you solar because they're thinking it's just a natural fit. If you're there doing stuff with your home, it's just natural to sell that. So it's interesting. I think you're right. It's going to be commonplace for automobile dealerships. Well, this has been an amazing interview, Eric. I appreciate your time. If the audience wants to learn more about dividend finance or about you, like what's the best way for them?
0: Check out our website. There's plenty of information about us online, whether it be via KBRA credit report or securitization reports from bond securitization that we've done to other online resources. You can also, of course, always submit an inquiry to our website and someone will reach out to you.
1: We appreciate your time. you provided a lot of great insights to the listeners and continue to do the great work that you're doing. And we really appreciate it today.
0: All right. Really appreciate the time, Benoit. And thanks for hosting me.
1: Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is Produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thanjan and Kevin Y. Brown.